Welcome to CVAR, a COVID vaccine adverse reaction podcast where vaccine injured share resources and hope without censorship. Each brave guest provide insight into their journey. This podcast does not replace any medical or legal advice. Now, let's welcome your host author, Bon Galt and her guest. Welcome to CVAR, a COVID vaccine adverse reactions podcast. I'm your host, Vaughn Galt. And today we talk to Brie Dreesen, who participated in the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine trials in the USA. Shortly after inoculation, she developed neurological damage that led to multiple sclerosis. And with that, Brie, welcome to CIVAR. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So a little word of advice for everybody. I typically, when I start doing these CIVAR episodes, I typically will run a little trailer onto YouTube and then people will go to the description and they will go to the other video sharing platforms. And then of course, um, the other 65 podcast sites that this episode is distributed to as well. However, moving forward, I will no longer be posting the trailer for CVAR onto YouTube because YouTube is further censoring um, this kind of content. Uh, so even when I post a simple two minute trailer, it will be pulled and it could jeopardize pulling the whole channel completely. So moving forward, everyone, for CVAR, uh, just you can find all the content on any of the 65 podcast sites and any of the four video sharing sites that I use. And you can also just do use DuckDuckGo search engine and just type in the name of the podcast and you will find so many other outlets aside from YouTube and Google to find the content. Okay, so let's get started. So free. Before we go into your reverse reactions and kind of what's changed in your life now after doing the AstraZeneca trial, what was your life like before you participated in the COVID-19 clinical trials? Well, I was a healthy mother of two young kids. Um, I spent my weekends skiing and hiking with my small children. Uh, I ended up hiking a mountain here locally that usually takes nine and a half hours. Three weeks before my shot, I did it in seven, and it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, so as far as physical condition, I was in prime physical condition. That's also one of the reasons why they selected me to participate in the clinical trial, uh, because I didn't have any kind of issues that would lead to someone suspecting that I would have an adverse reaction to a vaccine. I also have never had any problems with any of the previous vaccines I had received. I have received all of my vaccines, including the annual flu vaccine. Um, and so my life was great. I took care of my community. I took care of my kids. I was a preschool teacher. I had my little preschool kids that you know I adored and I still adore and I miss them. Um, and you know my husband and my family. And, and so I, I do feel like you know, it definitely has been life-changing. Yeah. Well, you know, 
In early 2020, there wasn't much information broadcasted on major news sources about the survivability of COVID-19. It was still relatively new. Um, but as of June 25, 2020, Cambridge University published a report that out of 2,070 people that tested positive for COVID-19, it still had a 93.7% survival rate and elderly people and people with pre-existing multiple diseases or what they call comorbidities present a greater risk of death. So the link to the paper is in the show description, everyone, if you want to read that early study. So with that, what kinds of media did you consume that contributed to your decision to enroll in the clinical trials? Like what was your intentions for participating? Well, first, first and foremost, you know, uh, for me at the time, the information was that, you know, as soon as the vaccines are available, we need to all get them. Uh, we all need to go and do our part, spread the, you know, stop the spread of the disease, get your shot, protect those around you. So that's essentially what the goal was. I was able to participate in a clinical trial for a vaccine having not had any previous reactions to a vaccine, I didn't think it was gonna be a big deal at all. Um, and so it really, it was kind of shocking <laughs> what happened, but it was not expected at all. Uh, my husband, uh, he's a scientist. And so we had been watching, you know, the disease evolve, uh, you know, between all of the variants, we've been watching it very closely ever since it landed in the United States. Um, and so, Fortunately, because of his background, we've been able to kind of decipher, you know, the pseudoscience, you know, and the science. Um, the science back then, still, because the vaccines were not a thing, we didn't realize that the vaccines were still, you were still going to spread the disease if you were vaccinated, you were still, you know, able to get sick if you had the vaccines. But back then, we all thought that if we get this vaccine, that it'll stop the spread of the disease and we'll be able to you know, essentially like what we did with smallpox, we'll be able to end the pandemic. So um, it, it wasn't really a judgment of what the death rates were or what your odds were with actually getting COVID. It was more just a, if I'm going to be able to have any place in ending the pandemic, it's going to be with getting the shot. And, you know, of course, masking and social distancing, that whole thing. We did all of it. Um, I did not want to be responsible for anyone losing their lives. Um, I absolutely believe that COVID is real. I do believe that, um, you know, long haulers, people that suffer for, you know, a year and a half now, people are suffering and their lives are wrecked because of COVID. So just because it's not picking people off at a certain rate is irrelevant to me because I don't want to be the person that gives a disease to somebody else that's going to maim them for the rest of their life. So that's basically what my approach was. It's like, keep my germs to myself and take care of those around me. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, so why. those, so, and, and, and that's complete, you know, the thing is, is, you know, we're here in fall of 2021 and it's easy to make judgments on how people thought about things back in early 2020, okay? When things start, the information starts, first started to roll out and, um, we didn't really get that much information. What information there was, was um, kind of choppy, you know, so it, it was still kind of coming to form. And so people are making decisions at the time based on what 
information they were able to find out. And sometimes that is a matter of luck as well. Because uh, for many people, and this is one of the things that I, you know, after interviewing so many people, like, where did you get your information? How did you make your decision? In order to understand where somebody is currently, you have to understand what brought them there, what information that they were privy to that contributed to the decision to make that action step that brought them to the current reality that they're experiencing. So there is no judgment there, but it's just a matter of understanding. Okay, so where did you get your information? And that is a common um, perception that many people in early 2020 had was, okay, well, if we get the vaccine and if we help move forward the vaccine into circulation, it will help um, close out the pandemic. So that was the camp that you were in, which is based at the time, completely yep. understandable um, at the time. So you were, you were basically volunteering to sacrifice yourself as a trailblazer for the greater good. Is that a, a good understanding at the time when you made that decision? Yeah, other than I didn't feel like it was a trailblazer at all. I mean, you know, it's like, it's a shot in the arm. I haven't had any problems with them before. So what was the big deal? You know, what what did I need to question? What do I need to be afraid of? So, right, uh, right. Yeah, I'll just go get it done and it'll be over with and I'll get my life back and because I'll be immune. I'll have right. my ticket to freedom. You know, the marketing back then was, you know, if you get your shot, then you can go back your, you know, go back to your life you know, as normal. And unfortunately, I do suspect that the CDC knew, um, you know, what the vaccines were and were not capable of as far as protection. And so I do think that they took their eye off the prize when they told everybody, you can unmask and you can resume your life so it's normal because you got your vaccine. And of course, what happened? So that was in the spring, right, of this year. We all unmasked and we went about our lives and then Delta, emerged and it spread like wildfire because we removed the any the only proven preventative available which is a mask and so we put all of the eggs into the vaccinate america basket and then all of the preventative measures we just said poof they're right right i mean in hindsight uh you know when you when you look at the information now in the fall of 2021 is increasingly um obvious with much, much material from highly vaccinated countries around the world, like Israel and UK and other studies, that the vaccinated are the ones who are really the super spreaders because they're walking around with no restrictions, free to go about the business, catching and spreading, and with a high, um, with a high rate of um, a virus, a viral load. So right. I'll put, I'll, I'll, but that's information that we are finding out in fall of 2021. So this, you know, 2021 hindsight. So, um, but, you know, not to, not to punish people for the information that they were making decisions on back at the, before that, you know, you, all you could do is get the most information, update yourself, adapt and roll forward um, as best as you can. And so it's kind of like when you're going through a storm, you can't see that, you know, a nice pathway is right next to you or another pathway is right next to you. you. You can't see your options. So you're making the best decision you can based on what you know and what you see currently. And so, um, and sometimes it's a matter of luck. Yeah, we don't know. Um, but let's let's go back to the trials. So 
how did you sign up for the trial? Was, was it something that you just emailed them or that you called them? I mean, what was their, walk us through that. So they, they just put out an ad and they said, hey, you know, if you're high risk, then, and you want a vaccine, then sign up. And so, yeah, I sent a, filled out their form and they got back to me. And uh, that was in September, October. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't hear anything. And I found out now the reason that I didn't hear anything is because AstraZeneca, the clinical trial here in the United States had been put on pause. So there were several weeks, I'm not sure the exact time frame, but the clinical trial for AstraZeneca was put on pause here in the United States because of uh, what they were seeing in the UK. There was a case of MS and there was another case of transverse myelitis. And so the United States, uh, they were concerned and so they wanted to halt the trial. Uh, ironically, when they resumed here in the United States, I was within that first few days that they uh, were given the green light to resume. And so I do often question what my life would be like had AstraZeneca not been, you know, given that green light to resume. Right, right. Um, so they slid so you right in, right into the couple of days where it was, you just kind of slide right into that, like that little window when when they yep. were running it yeah and so yeah and you know we weren't given the information that the trial had been put on pause uh, they didn't provide us that information um you know the the review of um the health background for me it was pretty thorough i remember it being it was well over two and a half hours and then i went in in person and that was another really long thorough visit that they did there um, yeah, they ran, they took a bunch of blood and all kinds of tests to make sure that, you know, that I fit what they needed for their study. And they gave me the green light and I got my shot. Well, let me ask you something. So when you were, when you were going in, did you see any other participants in there or talk to any other participants as well? There were a few people in there, but nobody was talking to each other, you know, Nobody's talking to each other. Then, you know, the social distancing was a big deal. So as soon as you came in, they put you back into a room by yourself. So. Okay. Well, that, that's, it's, it's, it's interesting because when you talk to talk to somebody who participated in the, the trials, um, you know, because you're saying in your specific case, they were looking for specific factors of healthiness. They were running these tests on you just to make sure you're they're the perfect healthy candidate. But then um, after the trials, we know, there's really no restrictions for anybody to qualify to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Like you can be pregnant, you can be young, you can be high, high risk, you can be elderly. I mean, there's, there's literally no restrictions. So when they roll it out to the public, there's like absolutely no restrictions. But in the trials, there were all these restrictions for right. to qualify. Well, What's the yeah. difference? There were some old people in there. But, and I know that uh, U.S. put them, I think they put a stop on them at the end because they didn't have enough elderly people in their trial mm -hmm. here in the U.S. But, um, you know, going back to the pregnancy thing, I'm pretty sure this is one of the very, very, very few drugs, if not the only one that has been released to the United States public without it being tested on pregnant women and then them saying to pregnant women, you need to go get it. Um, and so, you know, obviously to me, that's, you know, it's like, well, maybe we should test those people. Here we are 
my clinical trial participation was last November. So we're almost a year, right? Um, we've had a full year and we're still not collecting data on pregnant people that have been vaccinated. So where's the appropriate clinical trial process happening? Because right now there's a lot of holes because everyone's rushed and we're just trying to get shots in arms. We're not actually taking a step back to really look at the data in you know the full picture that we should because um, we're just right. trying to stop the disease with a thing that unfortunately is you know not stopping right. it. What, what now? So you you did the AstraZeneca clinical trial back in November. You said November 2020. Yeah, November 4th was the day I got my shot. Oh, not not, not early November 4th, 2020. So, um, because the FDA approved EUA for Pfizer in December of 2020, a month later, and the Pfizer um, trials only went on for about. Uh, two to three months of observation and six months of complete data before they presented that in November, 2020 to the, um, the FDA for the EUA. And those links are also in the description. You guys, you guys can read that the, everybody should read the Pfizer clinical trials report on what they found in the animals and also what they found in the participants, the human participants during the um, two to three month timeframe that they observed them. Uh, because some of these um, adverse reactions did come out early on, but because they did not exceed the percentage that is normally occurring in society, they didn't link them. That, that was a factor. The clinical trial um, data, this is something that's consistent amongst all of the trials. So Pfizer, really? J&J, Moderna, and the children's trial um, that they just released, and the booster trial. Um, data. And we have that on our website, c19vaxreactions.com. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's just the direct links to the FDA website and the European Union website. Every one of those uh, clinical trial reports has a neurological disorder mm -hmm. listed. And it seems to be about 1.6 to 1.8% for every single trial. There's right. no details given. There's no elaboration provided. It just says neurological disorder and there's a percentage. So if you think about 1.6% here in the United States, okay? So mm -hmm. here in the United States, 1.6% of all of the Americans that are fully vaccinated, that's still 2.88 million people. What is a neurological disorder? It would seem that we would be doing ourselves a favor if we elaborated on those two words, because if it's just a headache, which I'm pretty sure it's not, if it's just a headache, that's a little different than what this is. If you look up on the Johns Hopkins website, they define neurological disorder as basically what I got from the vaccine. So mm -hmm. headaches, tremors, shaking, um, the tingling, paresthesia. I mean, it's just like the list. Boom, 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 boom. Every one of them. So, so what were the symptoms that you experienced after the you got both shots or did you get one shot of AstraZeneca? Just one. You just got one. Okay. So AstraZeneca, is it two or one typically outside of the E? It's two. It's okay. So you got one, um, but outside of the clinical trials, it's typically two. So you got one and after you got one, how soon did you start to 
um, feeling symptoms? It was within an hour. So really, what, like was, what did you feel the first time, the first hour? Tingling down my arm. So I did the whole thing. Like I did the virtue signaling thing where I took a selfie with my band-aid. You know, I was like, hey, I got vaccinated, you know, and I got vaccinated before everybody else. So kudos, you know, um, pat myself on the back and, uh, you know, and within an hour, you know, on the way home. I had tingling down my arm. I was like, oh, that's weird. I've never had that from a vaccine or anything, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then by that night, my vision had become blurry and double. So we were watching TV and all of a sudden there were two TVs. And oh. um, yeah, and then sound became distorted. So it sounded like there was like a seashell, you know, this the ocean sound in both of my ears. And I just remember looking at my husband, I was like, something's not right. And so, um, and I didn't quite understand how to explain it to him, but I remember I was like, I'm part of a clinical trial. This is important data. I need to write all this down. So even with this starting, I was like, okay. So I looked at my watch and I'm writing down like the sequence of the symptoms and the times, you know, that things are happening. I'm like, this is going to be good stuff, you know? Um, Cause I figured someone would, you know, feel that that would be relevant data for their right, job. Right. Naively. So uh, that night I had a typical response, you know, the fever and the myalgia and the sweats and all that. By the morning it had resolved, but I got up to get ready for work and my left leg was slumped. So it was like slumped. And mm -hmm. I was walking into the left side of doorways and the sound and hearing issues were still there. And so like, and I always, it was always to the left on the left side of the doorways. I was walking into the left side of the doorways. And that day I went to work, you know, and the kids, their cute little voices were really loud. Um, and so by the end of the class period, it was so unbearable that I had the lights off in the classroom mm -hmm. and I had them sitting in front of a TV with a little learning thing on the TV. Um, and I called the test clinic. They didn't call me back. And a couple of days later, they finally called me back and I went in for a neurological evaluation and they did a neuro eval. And this whole time I'm keeping like a detailed list. Yeah. Of timeline of things. And, um, they said, Oh, well, you, you probably have MS, you know, it's probably not from the vaccine. You probably have MS. So I went to the ER, um, and they did all the tests. So they did spinal tap, um, MRI Ooh. of the head and the spine. What, what is a spinal tap? So just so people know if they think they're getting MS or, or they go in for, for diagnosis for MS, what is, so, what, a spinal tap, they look for any kind of neuroinflammation. So it could be a neurodegenerative disease like MS, or it could be, um, you know, GBS, which is Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is something that happens very rarely with vaccines, but it does happen. Um, or, you know, lesions on your spine, um, there's proteins in your uh, spinal fluid that they'll check. So basically what they do, this is your spine. They take a nice needle and they go between your vertebrae and they stick the needle into your spine and then they suck out the fluid that's sitting inside your um, spinal column and then they take the needle out and then you lay flat for a long time uh, because of this I had three so I've had three lumbar punctures how and long does it take to recover from the lumbar puncture every single time because well uh the the science is evolving on that most people will usually have you lay flat for one hour and then you take it easy for a day or two. Um, my first two lumbar punctures went fine. And my third actually was in March, March, first part of March, March 3rd, March 2nd. 
and it resulted in a CSF leak. So what is that? So a CSF leak is basically where the, uh, you know, the needle in your spine uh, causes a puncture. And if your body doesn't close up that hole, then all of your uh, cerebral spinal fluid that's keeping your spine suspended and it also keeps your brain suspended because it's all connected to so your spine and your head. If it's leaking out your back, your brain is going to sag in your skull and you can actually see it on MRIs. It's insanely painful. Like it oh, was like it. almost as bad as the vaccine reaction. Um, I was completely flat on my back for six weeks afterwards, um, confined to my bedroom. It was, it was a nightmare. It's did it, it heal? How does it heal? What did it give you? If, if you do a spinal tap or, you know, puncture and that ends up being what happens, do they give you some kind of medication or some kind of process so that you can heal or is it? So the natural healing is they usually give you caffeine and um, extra fluids and they want you to leave, lay flat. Uh, hmm. For mine, it didn't close up. If they don't close up within five days, then they usually recommend like a, a blood patch. And basically what a blood patch is, is you go into the hospital and they draw blood out of your arm and they put it straight into your spine to try to put a blood clot where the leak would be in your spine um, to keep your body from leaking your CSF fluid out. So I had to have three of those. So mm. um, it was pretty invasive. Um, it was very involved and you have to basically treat your back and your body like glass. It's, 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 it's not fun. Um, anyway, so back to when I, my first lumbar puncture um, they did a lumbar puncture, an MRI, and they looked for lesions, you know, in my brain and my spine. Everything came back clean. So I had a, uh, a big lymphocyte to neutrophil ratio. My thyroid that had been stable for years, for over 10 years, I was on a very low dose of um, thyroid medication. All of a sudden that skyrocketed. And um, I had zero aldosterone and aldosterone is a hormone that you need to basically retain fluid. Mm -hmm. And it does a, it, it's a critical part of your system. Um, anyway, so my body was fine. It looked fine. I did not have MS. I was misdiagnosed with MS. And um, so I went home from the hospital and they said, you know, we can't find anything. So mm -hmm. congratulations. You don't have a neurodegenerative disease. This is probably going to get better on its own. So I was like, great. Okay. I go home. And when I went home, um, the sensory issues and the sound issues were so severe that I had to be confined to my bedroom 24 mm -hmm. seven. Um, it had to be so dark that my husband had to put towels on the windows to try mm -hmm. to make it darker. Um, and my skin became so sensitive that my little boy, uh, he was eight at the time and he, you know, would come to hold his mommy's hand to help her feel better. And it was too painful. I couldn't even have him touch right. me. And my daughter, she is a little girl and she sings all the time. Like little girls do, you know, mm -hmm. like little voice. And it was, it felt like it was attacking my brain, just her tiny mm. little voice. And so I was removed from that at that point, I was removed from my kids' lives. Um, and I still haven't been able to regain that place in their lives um, still. And it's been almost a year. Um, so you can't hear your daughter sing or hold your son's I hand? Now. Yeah, okay. I can now. But I'm not picking them up from their soccer practice. I'm not taking them to practice. I'm not taking them to school. I'm not, 
you know right. uh, and and why why are you not able to be as active as you used to be is this so, another symptom that you have to live with yeah so basically that was just the beginning of the problems that i had um the cascade of symptoms went on for you know it was I want to say it was like another two and a half weeks when I landed in the hospital because my legs stopped working and I was peeing my pants. So I became okay. So, so I really want to have you explain these each one of these symptoms in more detail. So if people experience them or they start noticing them in themselves or their family and friends who got vaccinated, um, then they can be like, oh, they can they can tune in. So they can tune into those subtle cues and see if it matches what you went through. Great. So okay. the early indication so that it can go and get them checked out and not just ignore them. Right. Okay. So when I, when I was confined to my bedroom uh, in the dark by myself, um, things, you know, even my husband's pants swishing was too much for my ears. I couldn't brush my teeth. My teeth were so sensitive. I couldn't oh, brush really? my teeth. Everything was just on fire. My sensory system was just on overload. And uh, after that, a few days I want to say probably six days after my initial shot, I started having um, heart palpitations. So I was just laying there and my heart would just go crazy. My heart rate would just skyrocket. My blood. Like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like we have heart palpitations? Did it hurt? They feel like. So you know how your body, you, you don't feel your heart beating all the time. Ever since then, I can feel my heartbeat every single beat. I can feel it through my body still yeah. to this day. So it basically, it feels like it's jumping out of your chest. Your chest hurts really bad. There's like this band feeling around your chest. Um, and you know, like I was having problems with sleeping. So it was, I was just being, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night for no reason. And my heart would just be exploding and my blood pressure would be really high. And, um, and as we now know, it's like a, it's called an autonomic response dysfunction. And so basically what happens is your sympathetic nervous system, which is your, um, you know, your engage into action. So it makes your blood vessels constrict and it, you know, it, it affects everything. So then your eyes can focus, you know, and if, if you're in danger, then you can flee, right? So fight or flight. And then there's your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest. And for some reason with this reaction, people's sympathetic system gets stuck on. It's like a gas pedal is stuck on. Right. And your parasympathetic system, the rest and digest cannot engage to bring yourself back down. And so that started within six days. Uh, so I started having all of that kind of dysfunction where all of a sudden it felt like I you know, was in this fight or flight mode for no reason. And I couldn't get myself out of it. There was no way. I even got a therapist thinking, you know, cause you know, they figured, well, maybe it's anxiety. So I got a therapist and the therapist was like, no, this is chemical. <laughs> this is all chemical. I can't do anything with you until someone comes back around and helps calm down this nervous system problem that you have. Because until that happens, you're not going to be able to just will yourself out of it. You're not going to be able to just decide that your heart's going to stop racing for no reason. Right, um, right. For like, for, for, you know, typically the time that people would feel their every beat of their heart is when they're maybe running a marathon and they're really exact, you know, exact, 
exasperated from just tired from the exhaustion of working out and that's when they can feel like the high heart pressure but you're saying it's even worse than that it's even more severe I mean not that that's severe but it's even more intense than that right and and that's kind of what it feels like it feels like you're you're on a marathon sprint like your body is just really revved up and it just keeps going uh it was really bizarre I've never experienced anything like it um and after that, you know, I started getting nausea and diarrhea. So everything just kept going straight through me. I lost over 20 pounds, which I didn't have to lose to begin with. Um, and so then all of a sudden, I, it started hollowing me out. Um, what does that mean? So it, it just kind of felt like physically, it just kind of took who I was and it just, you know, stripped stripped who I was away. And I had, and the reason I say that is because I couldn't eat anymore. I couldn't sleep anymore. Um, I started having these horrible vibrations in my brain and in my body. And it felt like it was like an electrical sensation surging through my body all the time. And it was so bad in my head that it felt like my brain was just shaking inside my head all the time. And I couldn't see straight, you know, cause mm -hmm. I had the blurred double vision anyway. And then I've got the sensory problem with my ears where I couldn't hear anything without it overbearing, you know, and, um, and so then I had this vibration going on throughout my body and my brain to the point where I couldn't think I couldn't eat, I couldn't do anything. I literally, from the time I woke up to the time I would try to go to sleep again, I literally spent every minute just saying, okay, you just need to breathe in, you just need to breathe out. And that's the only thing I could control that was going on in my body. Um, I couldn't control anything else other than just breathe. You just have to breathe. And I was stuck in that survival mode for months. So it's not like this went on for a week. This didn't go on for a couple of weeks. This was months of this just nightmarish hell where like I 24 seven, 24 seven. And there was no break. There was no medication that would stop it. Um, it, it was like my body was attacking itself from the inside out and I couldn't do anything about it for months well now you did you go did you go back to the er to get this check after the first visit when they said oh we did it, the lumbar puncture everything's fine we don't see anything yeah did you go so, back to say there's more going on do yeah, other so tests time, yeah so every time a new symptom popped up we would go back to the emergency room um, and I ended up with another lumbar puncture after that another round of scans they looked for swelling in the brain they looked for lesions everything came back okay. Um, they said, yeah, we probably need to put you on some, you know, blood pressure medication uh, so your heart doesn't explode. And uh, so, you know, I, I was put on a lot of um, modulatory. So nothing that was actually going to treat the underlying symptoms. It was basically like, okay, we got to figure out what to do with your symptoms and we'll send you home. So, and so what, what, did, what, what did they give you at the time to try to address these extrasensory, you know, freak out that your body is doing because they they did the, the the ct scan on your brain they didn't find anything they did the lumbar didn't find anything um so it's it, it's happening on a deep level that the modern med machines medical diagnosis machines that we have that are not being able to find because this is a common thing i hear over and over again with the vaccine injury when it comes to the cv19 vaccines is that they do all these different tests and they don't find anything because the modern tests, for whatever reason, cannot pick up what's going on on a deeper level. I mean, 
Did they do a D-dimer test on you too? Because that, that's one of the ones that does a deep blood clot um, analysis. Yeah, so my D-dimer was okay. It was okay so, too. Yeah, okay. but uh, two months into it, I got vasculitis, which is, you know, the teeny tiny blood clots in your skin. You can see them. They're little tiny black. It's basically tiny bruises. Okay. Um, and I have all over my arms, which was crazy. But I want you to explain that. I, I want you to explain the little black, the, 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 that symptom, because that's a common one that some people start noticing as well. And did you, so you say that they, they, they look like little black or dark charcoal color. Yeah. They're bruises. Little, tiny, yeah. Little tiny dots that were like little tiny bruises. And they were on the inside of my arms. And I remember, cause I went to the doctor, I was like, I have no idea what this is. And he was like, oh, that's vasculitis, you know? And what is vasculitis? It's What's basically, vascul it's basically where your blood vessels, you know, the very ends of your blood vessels, they rupture. And so it leaks blood. And why so, did, why, why did they rupture? What causes them to rupture? That's a good question. Um, that's a question that I think needs to be answered. I would love it if we had some researchers looking into it. Uh, there are some theories that have to do with vascular inflammation and uh, it causing a weakness in the walls of the veins. Um, and so essentially you get leaky veins, but then there's also the people that end up with TTP. So the thrombolytic events where you throw full blood clots right into your brain or your organs or your lungs or wherever, which has been documented uh, to be connected to the vaccines. It is rare, but it does happen. Um, and with blood clots in a brain, you can't hide it, right? So these other issues, the neurological problems, you can hide it because it's, you know, you can't find it on an MRI um, blood clots. You can find it on an MRI. Um, so right. you have like this weak veins and I still had it. So, so the blood clots, the blood clots, they're, they're very deep blood clots in the veins. And, and it's the way- basically like the vein wall is weak. And so the, the actual tube that holds the blood uh, the the tube is weak and so then it, you know the veins can they're weaker and so they can rupture a little bit and blood will leak out and and according to your doctors when they when you went in for these dark charcoal spots of bruises all over your arms they're saying oh that's because the veins are the vein walls are not strong enough to hold the blood that's going through is that is that yeah, a, yeah. i try to explain like, things in oh, layman's terms with people Okay. Yeah. yeah. I tried to explain things in layman's terms so they can understand it. So what, what happens, what causes the, the deep veins to lose its structure, to lose its strength? So that's something that really, we really need to be looking into research community needs to be looking into this um, because it, it very well could go back to issues with the body, not being able to flush out the spike protein or an immune function disorder. There's a whole lot of reasons why the veins would be leaky or weak. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have anybody looking into this because of the massive, you know, depression. Yeah. Any, yeah. Anything vaccine related. Uh, so, something that's new, like a new drug or a new vaccine, you would have people all over the world being able to look into it to examine the side effects and to really figure out, okay, are there early intervention measures we can use? What's the data? What's the actual rate of incidence of these issues happening? That's not happening right now because of the full-on censorship that's happening. You know, 
and it's not just big tech. I mean, it's happening to the medical community as well. Um, right, so right. Not allowed to talk about it. The researchers that we have talked to, it's like in a very slight whisper. We can't get them to talk to each other because nobody's allowed to, you know, talk to each other about it. It's so it's all hush hush. So how right. are we supposed to help people that are getting these problems, right? If we can't even talk about it, so. Right, and we're, we're definitely going to talk about the problem of censorship um, a, a, around this. But but you found with this symptom, uh, it is because the deep veins are losing basically its strength. And I actually had this con the, this conversation with the last episode with uh, Nurse Nicole Landers, where she said some of the vaccine injuries that she had processed um, the cases at the hospital they were having uh, issues where their spine was breaking apart, like decomposing, like, and they have no clue why it's happening. Like, why is uh, body tissue, uh, the you know, bones in the spine and the, the lumbar area, why is it just breaking apart? They don't understand it. it, it, it you know, um, it, it, it's a degenerative thing that, and it happens so quickly and such an accelerated rate all of a sudden and then and she processes a couple of those cases and so you're saying the same exact thing it that like in this case with the little charcoal dots it's a deep veins losing its strength to be able to hold and process all the blood that goes through it and that's why it comes okay. out looking like that okay so another case of basically the structure of things um not holding up okay so right what did they do to address that one? Because do you still have that symptom of instant bruising? It's not nearly as bad anymore. It was really strange for a long time. But okay. Um, so so how did it go thing, away? How did it go away? Just on its own. Just on its own. And we did can it, talk about the therapies too in a little bit. But um, yeah, yeah. So we'll go to go each symptom at a, at a time and understand. So that one went away on its own. Um, some people actually put pictures of that specific one where it looks like all of a sudden they're just bruising all over the leg, all over the arm. And there have been some cases where um, they have that, where they lose full fingers. It, all, it looks black. Yes. You didn't get anything yeah. like that where you didn't have digits or units go turn no, completely. So my hands are still here. Thank heavens. Yeah. But yes, yeah. there are people that have had to have their appendages amputated. I think that is way more rare than the neurological stuff, but it does happen. So there is an issue. And is it because of that? Is it because of the, the veins losing it its strength? It very well could be, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it very well all could tie back to vascular inflammation. Mm. Um, and if it, if it is tied back to vascular inflammation, there are some things that can be done about it. Uh, like what, what can be done about it? So like if somebody is suffering the random symptom of the dark charcoal black bruises, in, in their body and let's say it goes to a limb or a finger or something like that and it starts to accelerate or cluster up um in frequency what can be done to you know stop it from getting worse well i think this is probably a better question for you know someone's physician okay. obviously if your hands are cutting off you know circulation because you've got clots so bad that your fingers are going blue or black you need to go to an emergency room right 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 uh, Smaller, and you, you did know, you you didn't have to go there because you didn't get that, but you no, just got the, the early way, spots. 
Okay. I had a lot of other stuff going on at the time. And so he really was doing his exam. He's like, oh, you have vasculitis. And then he moved on. Because I mean, at the time, you know, I was still struggling to do a whole bunch of other things with my body to get it right. So right. Okay. Spots on my skin were pretty low on the list. Right, (laughs) right. But right. For the the spots on the skin can can accelerate to something really big where basically you lose your limbs and you have to amputate your, your hands and your feet. I think they might be two different things. Are they? Um, Yeah. So I think the one where people are having clotting issues, I think that's much more like the thrombosis, you know, like with the people that throw blood clots into their brain. Mm -hmm. I think it's different than the small veins having the the structure of the vein walls be weak. So you leak blood. Um, But there's no, there's no medication. There's no medication for that. Or did you get medication for that? So if somebody gets that. Well, yeah, we can. We'll talk about the involved therapies because that's okay. just as involved. This is going to be your longest interview ever. No, people so, want to hear it. Yeah. So there's no there's no other place for this information. Literally, go look. It's there bad. is nothing. So, they want to hear um, the gooey. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So um, I also had the tinnitus where it felt like um, so I had a heartbeat in one ear, um, so I could hear my heartbeat whooshing you know, with my heartbeat all the time. And it was so loud. It was like a freight train in my head. And then mm-hmm. I had a high pitched sound in this ear. So I had both kinds of tinnitus going on with everything else. So the skin sensitivity and the touch and everything else, my husband would come into the room and he would, you know, say, Hey, how are you doing? And even him just saying, Hey, how are you doing? And his head just moving a little bit like this. It was too much for my eyes and too much for my ears. And I just remember telling him, I was like, I can't, you know, and I would just stop and just be like, I can't. And so he would leave. And so I was literally in the dark by myself for a long time. And how um, long? It was was a long time. Um, I want to say clear into my hearing finally, my hearing issues finally resolved at the end of February. So it was February 22nd when I finally was able to take my last earplug out. Um, Three months, three months. Yeah. So my, um, they call it hyperacusis and it's where you have this extreme sensitivity to sound where you can't be in a normal environment. Um, I had to get custom musicians earplugs. And so they basically, uh, you go to an audiologist and you have your hearing tested and, um, they could figure out what frequencies were too much for my ears. Mm -hmm. And then gave me earplugs specific with those frequencies muted out. So I put those in and that was my life, right? And so I had those in all the time and I kind of was able to spend a little bit of time with my kids after I got those, but I got those after Christmas. I mean, it was a long time before I was able to get my, my earplugs. Um, so Thanksgiving, missed out. Christmas, missed out. I was in survival mode as it was, just trying to teach, tell myself, remind myself, you need to breathe, right? So my kids had Christmas, somebody else bought them Christmas presents. That wasn't me. So if you think about all of those things that happen, right, during the holiday season and the ages of when you have little kids, it's kind of a big thing to miss out on. Um, And it's definitely something, especially still, my kids still miss their mom. They still don't have their mom. Um, When my kid, you know, scrapes his knee, he doesn't ask for me. He asks for dad. He asks for the nanny. He knows that I can't just jump up and go help him. 
Um, I don't make them food. They don't rely on me anymore. I went from being someone that my community and my family and my kids relied on to me needing them, me being completely vulnerable and being completely dependent on other people. Right, right. It's hard to be able to be in that situation um, and especially then to be vulnerable and completely dependent on others and then completely removed and isolated in the dark and in silence. It's kind of a hard place to be, especially when your body's just attacking itself and it feels like it's attacking itself 24 seven. Um, but the hardest part for me is, you know, basically it's hard even now. I still have to wake up every day and remind myself that I need to be okay with the electrical sensations happening. And so it I still happens? Okay. The, yeah. This yeah. and it's, a, oh, okay. So, so it never subsided, it never subsided like the, like the little black dots. Yeah. All the so, sensory um, stuff still goes. Okay. Yeah. So some things have resolved, um, but the internal vibrations, at least it's not in my head anymore, which thank heavens because that truth, it, I'm going to be honest, like I wanted to die. Um, I wanted to die for a long time um, because there, that was no way to live, to be attacked like that 24 seven without any break. I mean, right. unfortunately there have been people that have taken their lives and, you um, know, yeah, let me ask sad. you, yeah, let me ask about those, those suicidal, um, those suicidal thoughts, because uh, this costs you a lot of depression. Um, are there any other symptoms before we get to this topic? Are there any other symptoms that you also came across and had to deal with? Yeah, the list is long. But um, so I, I had um, like painful pins and needles, like someone was rubbing sandpaper on my hands all the time. And I still do. Oh, uh, you still do? So, yeah. And so, so, it, so you, know, you can, so you're doing this now. Does it still feel like pins and needles when you're doing this now? Yeah, but it's, it's strange because it feels like it's being scratched all the time, right? But I can mm. touch it now. So I think what's happened is the sensory nerves have been impaired. So um, one of the neurologists, the neurologist that I saw, he had a pin, like a needle, and he would touch, he touched my collarbone and then he touched my hand. He's like, hey, do these feel the same? And I was like, wait, those are supposed to feel the same? Because the sensation on my collarbone was drastically different than how I feel things on my hands now. So my yeah. hands went from incredibly so painful that you couldn't touch them to now where, you know, I can't really feel <laughs> how I'm supposed to like I feel pressure and it feels like there's sandpaper being rubbed on them all the time but as far as actual pain or other sensations I can't feel so I so are they like numb pain. are they numb or I mean no they just feel like they've got sandpaper on them all the time and that's why I didn't even notice until the physician put a needle on the back of my hand and was like does that feel the same and I was like no that doesn't feel the same they're they're definitely different um so yeah, they're mm. definitely different. And it still feels like I've got sandpaper on my hands all the time. Like, well, I'm just going to have to learn how to live with it. Right. Is it so, painful? Is it painful? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's painful. Okay. So your hands are painful all the time um, and they still feel like sandpaper. Did they give you any kind of, is there any kind of prescriptions that they give you to help reduce the pain or is nothing? You just have to live with it. So I have tried, we counted them the other day and I think we're up to 42 different medications and supplements that I've tried. Oh my goodness. So, okay. Anti-seizure medications, antidepressants, um, anti-convulsants, 
all kinds of pain medication, which didn't do anything because it's nerve pain and nerve pain is a totally different animal. Um, vitamins, um, you wanna talk about sedation medication. They tried all of it on me. Um, did it help me sleep? Eh, not really. Um, Are you able to get sleep or, or do you sleep, sleep at now. all? You can sleep now. I do okay. sleep now. Um, but Good. so the disease progression, I want to say there's like an acute phase and then there's the chronic phase. And so the acute phase for me was about two months. And that's when new symptoms were popping up and I just had no break, no reprieve. You know, it was just constant. Um, I had no idea what was going on. And then after that, um, it seemed like about month three, maybe, yeah, between two and a half to three months, things leveled off. So we had this escalation of symptoms and then it levels off. And then finally it, it was like May. So shot in November, like two months where I just, I couldn't do it. Like it was horrible, total nightmare. I never, ever, ever want to experience that again, ever in my life. And then things kind of started leveling off. And then finally in May, things started dropping off. So if you think about existing like that 24 seven for that long, that's a lot to endure. That's a lot of suffering, especially when nobody knows what's happening to you. Um, and you're just there, you know, left to on your own with, you know, and doctors don't know what it is. I'd go to the doctor and they go, well, what does AstraZeneca say? And so I'm like, that's a good question. And so then I'd ask AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca, what's happening to my body? Can you please help me? I feel like I'm going to die. And AstraZeneca would say, well, what does your doctor say? So mm -hmm. both of them were doing this. Still, AstraZeneca still has not followed up with me. They followed up for the standard six to six to eight weeks. And then after that, uh -huh. no more communication, no follow-up yep. on my symptoms. And if you would think about it, if your drug was doing this to somebody, you would think that you would want to follow up with them, especially because I am involved in three different scientific studies right now. I have a wealth of information of what has happened. They are not following up. So drug companies, there is absolutely an issue with how the clinical trials and how the public rollout is tracked, how it is monitored, right. and what is happening to those that are having reactions, even if they're rare. I mean, because like we said before, even 1.6% of a neurological disorder, 1.6% of a vaccinated population in the U.S. is still right. 2.1 million people. Right. Um, so yeah, so we had the sensory deficit. Um, I also lost control of my legs. So that was about two and what a half What was that? Weeks. What happened with your legs? So my, it started with my feet and it worked its way up. So it started, I had numbness and um, weakness in my toes. And then it just worked its way up my legs, um, up to my bladders when I started peeing my pants. Um, I went to the doctor because I had an appointment, you know, and it, the numbness and the motor dysfunction progressed over 36 hours. So it was kind mm -hmm. of, it looked like it was GBS. So Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the physician did an exam and he was really worried because uh, I went into his office and I was like barely like shuffling my legs. I couldn't lift him up. Right. And then I had these big old headphones on because I couldn't, you know, sound was too overwhelming. Darkest sunglasses I could find. And then all of a sudden my legs were not working right. And I was peeing my pants. And so. So like, well, did, like you're telling your body, 
work, legs, work, and nothing. Yeah. I mean, it was that, it's like, okay, it's like that. Yeah, my body, I had no control over my body. Like, I was complete, you know, I was completely left to whatever the heck my body was doing at that point. I had no control. Um, so, yeah, so I was admitted to the hospital because my legs weren't working. So they pumped me full of um, pain medication. And, and, you know, to be fair, uh, this was very early on. There was no other vaccine victims known, right? The, nobody had any idea what it was. And so the doctors were just trying to figure it out. So they're like, well, maybe it's a silent migraine with your sound sensitivity. This is, this is in yeah. December, 2020? December this was two and a half weeks. So this was before Thanksgiving. Okay, so this is November twenty. Yeah, it's still not, you know, because because I'm gonna put the I'm gonna put the link for the Pfizer because I don't have the AstraZeneca clinical trials, um, but in the clinicaltrials.gov government website they have the Pfizer one that they use to advise FDA, and in the Pfizer one they do the same um, two month observation, and the question with with the observation because you brought this up with AstraZeneca's trials that you participated they only do an eight week observation as well is two months of clinical observation data enough to call safety on humans in I mean, my opinion as a participant uh, mm -hmm. as a participant and also as a very informed consumer at this point um and after reviewing the history of how vaccines have been rolled out in uh you know in the history of the united states it is not long enough uh, I, I do feel that it was extremely premature to go out saying this is safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, and without any consideration for the collateral damage left in the wake of the rollout of these vaccines. So two months, two months is, um, is like, because that is still the message. Yes. It's safe and effective, and a lot of big tech um, companies are censoring anything outside of what the WHO says, which is, is safe and effective. And the safe and the efficacy is only based off of a two-month observation period. You can say, you can argue, because there was about six months from the two-month observation on the Pfizer one up until the point where they had to cut off and present the information to the FDA in November 2020, which all that is in the descriptions, you guys get really familiar with the clinical data, um, that you can say maybe six months of data, but is six months enough to to rule eff efficacy and safety for humans so, so the typical trial for you know vaccines here in the united states is two to three years so obviously to have um you know as the cdc R rochelle walensky has said many times the overwhelming data is um in in favor of the vaccines being safe um, now, if we're going to be fair, if we look at the tools that we have in our toolbox to fight COVID, if you compare the vaccines to COVID, your odds are still in favor of the vaccines. But when you compare vaccines to other vaccines, this vaccine definitely has a considerable um, level of uh, safety signals um, that are being sent out to the government agencies through the VAERS system, mm -hmm. as well as individuals like myself who have repeatedly reported these issues to these agencies directly mm -hmm. to the point where this does warrant further investigation. 
we absolutely must do better so those that do encounter this issue can be met with some kind of early intervention measures ourselves. Um, there is a team of researchers that we're working with that have repeatedly said that this is treatable, this, the vaccine reaction, it is treatable and early intervention is key. So they, catch it early, catch it early. Yes, and so instead what we have done and what those in my situation um, are experiencing now is they are fresh with a reaction, right? Just within 24 to 48 hours is typical. Sometimes it takes up to a week, two weeks, but the vast majority is within the first couple of days. Uh, they go to the ER and they're met with physicians who are uh, have been met with memos from their licensing boards threatening to revoke their licenses if they're involved in anything that is taboo related to the vaccines. Um, Which is, what is taboo? What is, define define um, from your experience and working with various doctors with these various adverse reactions that you experience, define what is not allowed for doctors and nurses to do when somebody like you comes up and says, hey, I'm a physical case that this is not safe and effective for me. I need some help here. What can they not do? They, if you think about their oath, they absolutely should look at us and go, okay, I'm going to help you. Let me try to figure this out. And there are some physicians that do. Uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of those in my situation are misdiagnosed with anxiety or MS. Now, what's interesting is those with POTS, so those who have experienced chronic illness in the past, POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's basically if you go upright, the blood drains out of your brain and your heart can't pump the blood back up to your brain well enough. And so all of your functions in your body start to malfunction and you become weak and shaky and all kinds of things happen. Um, you pass out. Some people try to pass out. Other people don't. Anyway, so of those with the chronic diagnosis of POTS, over 70% of them are diagnosed with anxiety first. So they're mm -hmm. misdiagnosed with anxiety. And then, you know, months, years later, they're finally able to get an appropriate diagnosis. So in the history of American medicine, this issue of, you know, putting people into a box and saying it's anxiety, it's not new. That is not new. But yeah. what is new is that these people are, um, these practitioners and the nurses are being intimidated. They're being coerced uh, into a, a very polarized dynamic where we are ushered in places very hush hush. So when I was brought in uh, for some research uh, at a lead research institution, it was very hush hush. I still can't talk about it, right? The researchers don't want me talking about it. They don't want to talk to other people about what's happening. Um, the physicians that I have here, they don't want me to tell other people their names. And it's like, so it's not being, this issue is not being regarded as an equal to any other syndrome that we've had in uh, the history of the United States. So um, let me ask you this, let me ask you this, because this, this, is, this is a thing that continues to get brought up over and over again with every single vaccine injured um, person I interviewed um, and health professional that I interviewed is this issue of censorship, even at the hospital level. If the vaccine injury is injured person 
previously had the COVID-19 vaccine, whereas they did not have anything prior to that in terms of health issues. They were completely clean bill of health like yourself. So they can't like link it to, oh, it was from your pre-existing cancer that you already went through or whatever the deal is. But clear-cut case of some kind of connection there. Um, the, the doctors and the nurses are being threatened with losing their job and their ability to practice medicine and they will be ostracized in their own um, industry with all the other hospitals in the network, in their state, et cetera, if they acknowledge the vaccine injury is linked to this vaccine. Is that is that a correct assessment for well, why there's kind of, lack of information? Kind of what, that's kind of what has been interpreted. The okay. actual documentation from the medical boards basically is like, if you are a contributor on any level to misinformation associated to the vaccines, we will pull your license. So what is misinformation? Because you telling your story can be classified as misinformation um, because it goes against the narrative that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective for practically almost everybody. Right. There's no, there's no asterisk there, which is no asterisk. Asterisk. So, you know, if you, any drug commercial you see, right? It's mm-hmm. um, here's the drug name. So Celebrex, it's gonna change your life. And then the whole rest of the time for the vaccine commercial yeah. is all the side effects, right? Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I find it very odd. And I would think that you know anyone um, that is consuming this information that is presented to them from the CDC, the FDA. Um, would take pause when they hear this is safe. There's no asterisk there. Where's the long laundry list of side effects that right. accompanies this in all drugs in this country? Right. It is not present with this. It is not part of the narrative and it absolutely should be. That, that's if we're, a, yeah. So yeah. if we're going to talk about vaccine hesitancy, I totally understand why people would be hesitant because it's like, right. They know that they know everybody knows somebody at this point that's had a problem, right? And then you've got well, if they want to acknowledge it, some people don't want to acknowledge it. Oh, even if the person's in front of them with the injury, they don't want to acknowledge it. Those right, it's like it's almost like a dog that sees something doesn't want to see. Like uh, I don't see that, you know? Right. (laughs) So you know, if I don't look at it, then it doesn't exist. Um, You know, and that's actually that's something that's not new in this country either. We've done that with all kinds of diseases. We did that with AIDS, right? Um, it's just re- history repeating itself. It's like, oh, AIDS, that's this ugly disease that happens to a certain population. It, it's irrelevant, right? And it wasn't until then all of a sudden AIDS expanded, right? And became essentially a pandemic, right? That all of a sudden we decided we probably should look into it. And yes, these are real people that are dying. You know, these are real people that matter. But it took a long time for us as a society to rally around the people that were dying from AIDS, right? Right, right. Suffering for a long time on their own. They were hidden, they were silenced, and then they literally were buried. And it's so tragic that anyone, right, whether it's a disease like COVID or whether it is a reaction to a drug or a reaction to a vaccine, 
it is so tragic that those that are um, have no you know no fault of their own they go and get this vaccine they go and have a drug right that you know is FDA approved or whatever um, and then they lose their life their life should matter those people that have lost their lives because of the vaccine should absolutely have their lives held in the same regard as those who have lost their lives from COVID. Right, right. You should acknowledge the vaccine injuries. You know, the thing, the thing that, that in what you're saying um, that I really, you know, pick is when you look at the clinical, uh, the paperwork for the clinical trials, let's, let's say the Pfizer one that's in the description, you guys, uh, there's printout pages where it actually says the percentage of people on the human, the two month observation period that got XXX adverse reactions. If you take a look at the medical term and you look it up on the search engines, it will expand what it is like. It's kind of like earlier when you said where they, it was like, oh, you have, ner- you have, oh, I forgot the, 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 the symptom, uh, but it's, they just kind of said, oh, you had this one issue. And it's like, that one issue is not a minor issue. It's actually a big deal. Like neurologic issues are like a big deal. But when you look at the clinical data and you look at the small, oh, 1%, 4%, 2% of these people, yeah, 1%, 2%, 3% is really rare. But you take it times the many people that took the vaccine and times it by those small little 1, 2, 3, 4% for each one of the adverse reactions listed, in the clinical data, then you see the scope of the problem of the vaccine injured. And um, you can't deny the scope when you multiply by how many people they've already inoculated with this to those little percentages for each and every single adverse reaction. So, um, So beyond that, now you have a group of people who are vaccine injured, um, who are coming in to get their grievances and the suffering addressed, and you have doctors not allowed to discuss amongst each other what they're finding, what they're, you know, what they're doing to diagnose, what they're doing to trying to help um, help their their patients, and the ways doctors learn is from each other in an open source communication. That's why they call it practicing medicine because you're constantly practicing. But if they're not allowed to discuss with each other openly, um, anything negative about the vaccine regarding the vaccine injuries that they are seeing, then they're not practicing medicine. Then, Then the people who are suffering are not going to get the help because the people that is going to get them the help is not allowed to do the job they're there to do because of the censorship and the propaganda that is being pushed on them and the coercion and the fear tactics that are being pushed on them. So these are real issues. Um, And so it, it makes me ask about this because there's people who are living like yourself with this in real time. You describe yourself as disabled. Um, so if somebody had these, all these symptoms and they're keeping records of all the medical histories, you know, documenting everything with printouts of everything from the hospital. Um, so there's, they have physical records of what they went through. Um, are you using that to file a disability? Have you, have you tried to file a disability? I mean, have you looked into that? 
I haven't yet. And the reason I haven't is because I want my life back. I am fighting to get my life back. So that means that in my head, I cannot still, even though it's almost been a year, I still cannot accept that this is going to be my life for long term. And so I am fighting tooth and nail to restore my previous health so I can go back to being a good mom and I can go back to work and take care of, you know, all of the cute little preschoolers and deal with normal life problems. You know, I mean, I don't think people realize how nice it is to be able to drive yourself to the store, you know, Mm -hmm. um, how nice it is to be able to walk down your stairs without having to pay attention to whether your knees are going to buckle under you and you're going to tumble down the stairs or not. I don't think people realize how nice it is to be able to even just sit at your kid's soccer game and watch your kid run around doing, you know, Mm -hmm. not even, you know, it's like my kid, she's the best on-field cheerleader. Like she has no potential in soccer. She stops and, you know, picks the dandelions and because I wasn't able to participate in any of those moments with my kids for so long, even just those tiny moments are priceless now, but I still, I want my health back. Um, my family's life still revolves around me and how I feel on any given day. And so, and I don't feel that's how a typical family should function, right? You know, like a mom is supposed to be the one taking care of their kids. So until that happens, you know, and who knows, maybe two, three years down the road, maybe I'll go down the disability road. But for right now, no, I just want my life back. And okay. you know, I'm still hoping that maybe two months down the road, there'll be some magic cure. And, you know, I'll be able to go back to my normal life. And yeah, maybe that's denial, maybe that's something else. But yeah. And, you know, everybody is in a different, everybody's in a different mind space with this, who are who is dealing with this, like yourself. So for some people, they actually have applied for disability using all the medical records of all the things that make it hard for them to maintain a job. Um, and in your case, you're saying you, you're resisting even applying for temporary disability in the meantime. So because you're like, this is going to I'm going to go back to normal. Yeah. You're, you're in denial. Okay, well, at least you acknowledge it. <laughs> you know, there's some people who, who only go disability for maybe like a couple of years until they get back and then they, you know, can, can get can maintain a, a regular job and then they get out of disability. But for some for some people, they have no income to sustain themselves. Yes. And those people uh, and they can't just take less. a year or two off without, you know, any income. So a disability is a a, a really critical thing that they need to apply for if they're in this situation. So absolutely. And it, it's really unfortunate because uh, the people in our situation, they're left without any kind of financial recourse. So yeah. because this issue is not a recognized reaction like the thrombocytopenia or the uh, myocarditis or these other issues that are acknowledged by the government agencies as real reactions from the vaccines, they're able to, uh, they have a way easier time um, filing for disability than we do because these agencies are not acknowledging that these reactions exist. And this is, um, it's not like they don't know. They know, they know about the research. I have been on repeated um, dialogue with the heads of these agencies. I have been in uh, over Zoom meetings with these agencies. They know, and they know in detail what is going on. 
but yet they still have yet to acknowledge that this is happening. Because they are not acknowledging this, we cannot file for disability. We cannot get appropriate and very essential medical exemptions through our mm -hmm. employers. We also are completely left out from any kind of real compensation through the vaccine injury compensation fund or the right. CIP, which is the other injury compensation fund here in the United States. And um, there, oh, and because they're not disclosing this, the medical community is not watching for this. It has not given the green light to researchers to start researching this. Everything funnels back to the CDC and FDA saying that this is happening. Even if they say it's rare, that would change the game for us. And because they are not right. disclosing this in any way, shape or form, it's not in any fine print anywhere. We cannot get appropriate medical care. We cannot get appropriate compensation. We are completely left exposed in any area you can imagine. It's just- right. Well, see, that's the, see, and, and, and the thing with filing disability is that you have to have medical paperwork acknowledging, okay, we acknowledge from these tests that this is what's happening and this is why she can't walk or this is why she can't, you know, stay, talk or what, whatever the, the deal is. But in this situation, things are happening in such a deep level and there isn't any research and there, there isn't very many tests that can see what is happening on a deep level. So it's really hard to prove to disability that these things are happening where every test comes back going, you're fine, you're fine, but obviously you're not fine. Um, it makes me wonder if any, and because a lot of the, um, the clinical information, especially the Pfizer one, um, but there, they put lipid nanoparticles in these vaccines as part of the new technology. And they have discussed it as part of cancer research and different research for years, for years, um, has anybody ever investigated if lipid nanoparticles is one of the factors in why they're not being able to, you know, diagnose the deep issue that's going on with you? So the strange thing about the lipid nano nanoparticles is, is that it's only in the mRNA technology. So it's only in Pfizer and only in Moderna. So that leaves out J&J &J and AstraZeneca. Okay. So you have a reaction, and this is this is kind of why I'm suspicious of how relevant the lipids are to this issue, because it's only in half of the vaccine brands, right? Mm -hmm. But you have the exact same reaction happening in all four brands. Mm -hmm. So that leads back to, okay, so that may be something that sets people off that have Moderna or Pfizer, but then why are we all having the same issue? So I think right. it's an underlying issue with immune dysfunction. Um, there is a researcher in California who has been looking into long haulers for you know a long time, and he has found spike protein in the non-classical monocytes, which is you know an immune cell in your blood, um, in long haulers. And so, what's happened is those that have persistent symptoms from COVID, they are also uh, they are having an issue, it appears, uh, we'll, we'll see how the research pans out, but it appears that their uh, bodies are having a hard time clearing out the spike protein after the acute infection. Right. So he was curious because he started having a bunch of vaccine injured patients show up, you know, asking him for help. 
So he started running the same tests. Oh, and also COVID side effects neuro and our side effects neuro, they are very, very, very similar. So, so is it a spike protein that in both, in both groups that is the cause? Well, that's, that's what he's postulating because that's what he's he tested, postulating. Yeah. So he tested 10 of us. I was one of them. Um, and, uh, we all have spike in our, in our blood as well. Um, and it's mm -hmm. actually in a higher number than the long hauler group. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 The vaccinated have a higher, that's what a lot of the latest research in the fall of 2021 is coming out is if you look at the Israel, the Ministry of Health in Israel and in other um, places, the vaccinated are um, having a higher viral load when they catch COVID and the right. higher viral load of spike protein. That's what the, what's being um, suggested. Yeah. And so, it'll be interesting to see what their studies come out as. But I know here in the United States, we've been able to kind of start the link between is it the spike? So the spike in the vaccines, you don't have the spike in the vaccine, but you have the code to make the spike. So you get the kind of the same thing, right? And so their their structure is a little bit different um, from actual COVID and the spike generated from the vaccines. But uh, if your body, so those of us that are symptomatic post vaccine, um, it and we also have spike in our blood. People that are symptomatic post-COVID also have spike in their blood. The vast majority of those that are asymptomatic post-COVID, asymptomatic post-vaccine, their bodies, they don't have spike, okay? So their bodies okay. are able to clear out the spike correctly. So that leads this maybe down this rabbit hole of, is this an immune dysfunction, right? Is the body just not able to clear out the, um, the spike protein that is then causing these other issues like persistent um, sound sensitivity issues or the blood pressure problems or the heart dysregulation or the blood vessels being weak and leaky or um, you know cardiovascular inflammation that you know you even have blood clots you know pop up later on. So there's there's a whole lot of things that could go oh and brain fog short-term memory loss, neuropathy. I mean, all of it could go back to the immune system just not being able to clean out how it should. Um, it would be nice if we had more people looking into that because I do think that there, there very well could be a smoking gun there with um, yeah. what he's working on. Well, you got to remove the censorship and the propaganda that suppress and the, and the, the, the fear and bully tactics on, on the medical uh, institutions to do that because that's what's preventing it you know right and it so, would be really nice to be able to have some kind of virtual conference where and even if it's uh, you know with everybody all the physicians sign a non-disclosure agreement they don't have to tell anybody else but if we got a bunch of minds looking into this I think that we'd be able to make progress but there's no money in this you know um, there's no funding there's boatloads of money being you know funneled into testing to make sure that the vaccines are good, but there is not boatloads of money going into testing to see what's wrong with the vaccines. This also, right. Right. there's also a huge gap in the funding for vaccines and the funding that is being funneled into early intervention measures for COVID. Right. Um, and so, right. you know, if, should we talk about early intervention measures? Yeah. We're going to, yeah, let's, you know, the thing 
because I do want to talk about about the early intervention because that right because we know that whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, you catch and spread it just the same, and you are in the same boat as everybody else. Everybody needs early intervention. But you know, I really wanted to share the press conference you did with Senator Ron Johnson. So you taken your experience of being vaccine injured from the AstraZeneca clinical trials in the U.S. and you have become a spokesperson for the vaccine injured. So Senator Ron Johnson did a press conference about adverse reactions to the COVID-19 vaccines. And um, I wanna share my screen because I wanna play it. I don't know, you said you haven't seen it. Thank you all for being here to hear these stories. And as you can see, now I have to see your faces. We are like family. We have suffered together for so long in a way that no one understands but us. So we really do appreciate you taking your time to give us a voice, to give us this opportunity to make our case. A huge thank you to Senator Johnson. He's been very kind and very generous with his time. I also wanna say, Thanks to Senator Lee, my home senator, and his staff for their compassion and for taking our concerns seriously. And they're actively working with us to help us find a solution. My name is Brianna I am a preschool teacher in Utah, and I'm a mother of two small kids. Like everyone else here, I am a strong supporter of science, and I have always believed in the importance of vaccines. I was so confident in this that I enrolled in the phase three clinical trial here in the United States for AstraZeneca. Within minutes of my first shot, I felt tingling down my arm. And by that evening, my vision had become blurry and sound became distorted and I developed hyperacusis, which is a sensitivity to sound. Within 48 hours, I landed into uh, the ER, the first of many visits. My sensitivity to light and sound became so severe that I had to be confined to my bedroom alone in darkness and silence. Even brushing my teeth was painful. I then began experiencing erratic heart rate, blood pressure, fluctuating body temperature, extreme nausea to the point that I lost over 20 pounds. Just before Thanksgiving, I lost control of my legs and my bladder, along with my dignity. At the hospital, I was treated for a severe migraine, and when that didn't resolve anything, they told me it was anxiety. Next came the vibrations, and they were internal vibrations in my brain and all through my body. I couldn't think, I couldn't eat, I could barely breathe. This persisted 24 seven for months. I was trapped in isolation and in silence, completely overwhelmed by the sensations attacking my body. My children went days without seeing me. I missed out on months of their lives. I did not buy a single Christmas present for my kids. I thought I was dying and after months I wanted to die. After months of suffering alone, I found Dr. Hertz and her group. I was initially relieved to hear others like me 
However, my relief turned to alarm as our numbers grew, and then it started impacting kids. All of our experiences were similar. Healthy people who became ill after receiving the vaccine, whose doctors instead that insisted that these reactions were not really happening, that the CDC would have told them. They blamed MS, they blamed anxiety, they blamed migraines, anything but the vaccines. A new friend of mine had long haulers, then she received the vaccine in hopes that her symptoms would improve. However, rather than bringing relief, the vaccine took what little progress she had made, leaving her severely debilitated. We talked often, many days just trying to hold on. Then I hadn't heard from her for a few days, and I get a phone call from her husband, and she had become a victim of suicide. The human toll is real. This is not some benign reaction. This thing overtakes your body and you have no choice but to hold on and hope that you survive. We have been robbed of our cognitive abilities, our physical abilities. We cannot work, we cannot care for our families or our children or ourselves. We are struggling to make it through each day, abandoned by our healthcare teams. We are the collateral damage of the pandemic. As you can see, I am recovering. I can walk. The touch of my little son's hand no longer feels like it's setting me on fire. The sweet sound of my daughter's voice no longer feels like it's attacking my brain. But I have a long way to go. I still am unable to work or care for my children. We had to refinance our home to hire a nanny. Before this, I took one medication, a thyroid pill, every day. And now I am on nine. And that's just to turn down the dial just enough to make the symptoms bearable. We all volunteered to receive the vaccine to try to help to end the pandemic, but now we are suffering. COVID has, impact all of it. It, COVID has impacted all of us. For some, it has resulted in loss of life. For others, they are now long haulers, debilitated and suffering. There are long haulers who have got the vaccine and their condition improved. There are long haulers who got the vaccine and they stayed the same. And there are long haulers that got the vaccine and now they are worse. And there are some who never had COVID and are now severely debilitated and sick. This is us. We are part of the full picture. Please do not erase us. Please do not make us invisible. To the media, we need your help to start the conversation to help us end the stigma surrounding the term COVID vaccine reaction. To the CDC and FDA, we desperately need you to communicate with the medical community what is happening. To our elected officials, we need help getting momentum for research for early intervention strategies so that when these patients do arrive in the ERs and hospitals, physicians will be equipped with the knowledge and tools to help us to the medical community and to research institutions. Please help us. 
please hear us. Please believe us. Thank you. Okay. So you 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 did a wonderful job in, in testifying um, in that press conference. And you said that was that was mon many months ago. Many months ago. Um, and at, in the press conference, you said that you were on nine prescriptions. Now you're on 42. Well, I've so, tried 42. You tried so 42. Tried failed. Yeah, I've tried and failed a ton. And uh, I've got it dialed down to, I think since then I'm on seven now. I've dropped two medications off. Okay, so it's kind of like you're doing your own little Frankenstein research yes. on yourself. Hey, yes. you know what? Nobody else is doing anything. Might as well throw everything right. on the kitchen table on it. I, I totally get it. You know, the thing about that, um, that, that press conference is you were really calling for, as a vaccine-injured person, doing the right thing to help everybody else in the pandemic. Um, and you were calling for the media to basically acknowledge the vaccine injuries, acknowledge that doctors um, and nurses and medical profession are not allowed to freely talk about the vaccine injuries and the, the, um, the concern that the, the, the vaccines for, for COVID-19 is not completely safe and effective, and there should be disclaimers on that. Um, you, were, you were having these discussions in, in that um, speech that you say, and yet still today, media has turned up the censorship and the propaganda. I mean, I, I, this is a podcast um, that I put this on the podcast network. I am not paid by anybody to do this. This is my own free love and passion. I do this out of service for people um, to get the information because nobody's doing it. So might as well. Um, but, and I don't have any sponsors. I don't have anybody telling me what I need to report on, et cetera. But for a lot of these media con conglomerates like Google, like YouTube, like Facebook, like the mainstream news, um, they do, and they have to toe the line. And by towing the line and following forward with their sponsors and the people that fund them to not report on all these things, they actually, um, it's safe to make the argument, they're actually participating in propaganda and censorship that is hurting the American public. And that's exactly what you said in your testimony. The media needs to acknowledge these vaccine injuries and acknowledge um, some of this stuff so that we can get to the bottom of this and we can help these people. Um, even today, Yahoo, uh, I'm sorry, not Yahoo, but um, YouTube made an announcement that they're going to really crack down on any influencers um, or anybody who talk against the safe and effectiveness of the um, COVID-19 vaccines. So um, now all these influencers like myself are having to decide, okay, how do we get this information now about completely getting our channels deleted from YouTube? Is YouTube worth it anymore? You know, where can we go as a backup? So there's a whole conversation. And being an influencer myself, with my small little channel on YouTube, and I have many others, and it has grown because of the censorship, have grown to other platforms and grown those viewership. Um, I get those e emails from, from YouTube to only promote the safe and effectiveness of the, um, the jab and nothing else. Don't say anything else about vaccine injuries. Don't say anything else about anything negative. So a lot of influencers got those emails and continue to get those emails. And when they do put something up, um, they get they get the um, the threats from YouTube that if you do it again, 
you're going to get a warning. You do it again. We're going to complete your whole channel. Even if you have millions of subscribers, we're going to delete the whole thing, all your whole history. So even on the social networks uh, for influence and podcasters and people like myself who use the YouTube channel, for example, um, they're getting the same threats um, that the doctors and nurses are getting for acknowledging and investigating the other side that is not being reported by mainstream news. So there's um, something with YouTube with the, they're monetizing the information that um, they want to disseminate as well. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the influencers that, that, that told the line with the, the who narrative, um, they are being monetized more. They're being promoted more. The algorithm picks them up more. Everybody else who says anything against it are being um, are getting the opposite. So, um, for example, I, I I put a trailer on my YouTube channel on an interview with Doc with uh, Mr. Ernest Ramirez Sr., who lost his son five days after getting the Pfizer vaccine, his 16-year-old son, and that had. Um, over 20,000 views just for the trailer to get the information to go to the other networks and in the description because um, they were allowing trailers. So I put trailers up. But anyways, it's been cut down to like 400 people. And that's what happens. That's The algorithm picks it up that you're not promoting what they want you to promote. Um, you're, you're telling the truth about the vaccine injuries. You're telling the truth what's going on in the hospitals uh, from different perspectives. And that's not the perspective that is being authorized. And so they will cut your views. They will cut your funding. They'll de-platform you. They'll demonetize you. you. These influencers make absolutely no money anymore from their content. Um, you really are only doing this because of integrity. Because there's absolutely no benefit to YouTube anymore. Unless you're an influencer who's going to say it's safe and effective and everybody and their mom and their baby should get it. And then the algorithm kicks you all the way up. And right. that's what's happened. That's what's happening. Um, so, but this has been felt firsthand by Senator Ron Johnson, um, who was providing the vaccine injured a platform without censorship. And because of that, he gets a lot of hate mail for those conferences. And even the vaccine injured like yourself are labeled as quacks or misinformation for sharing your own testimonies. So um, the reason why is it shows that the vaccines are not completely safe and effective and should not be mandated and forced onto people. The people have should have choice. But so what do you say to people who call all of this, you and everybody else who share this information as liars? You're all liars. What do you say to those people? So this has been really sad to see. Um, our goal with that press conference, because we naively believed at the time, it was like, well, maybe, maybe the American public just needs to hear us. Maybe they just don't know that we exist, right? So that's the whole reason we went to do the press conference. And it's really hard for sick people to travel. So I don't think people really understand how difficult it was for everybody to even get there uh, to begin with. With that press conference, um, that room was full of reporters. And I want to say there was at least three or four of them that were crying, like full on crying with us. Okay. So it wasn't like it was like the press didn't show up. They absolutely showed up. 
but they realized, and I think they, this is just my take, you know, I could be wrong, but I, I think because of Senator Johnson's history with the media, because he's been ripped to shreds before on different issues, I think they came expecting a spectacle. I really do. They came, oh, Senator Johnson's putting together a press conference. Let's go see, you know, what kind of chaos he's going to drum up now, right? Mm -hmm. So they came looking for a show and they were met with real people with a real problem enduring real suffering. And it was very obvious by the looks on their faces that they knew that this was real, that this wasn't fake, right? Um, they didn't run it, as you noticed. I mean, there was a couple of things that mm -hmm. hopped, you know popped up on Fox and you know a couple of yep. small outlets. But by and large, these reporters went back. And if they did go back with the truth, with our faces, they couldn't show our faces. So instead of showing our faces and smearing us, alongside Senator Johnson, because that's what happened, right? So all of the news stories came out that day and the following day of Senator Johnson is spreading misinformation with a press conference. And then there is no mention of our stories, right? None or of our or I've, I've, I've seen headlines where it's like alleged injuries. Yes, yes. Or so stage injuries, you know. The right, yeah. Play so a play on very, words. It was very twisted. It was It was kind of surprising. So we went there thinking that people were going to believe us and that that was going to break the dam, right? And that, you know, we were going to finally be able to get medical care and people were going to be able to start talking about this and maybe there'd be an investigation on why this information was suppressed and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not what happened. Um, the media had to toe the line because we all see what's happening. And, uh, and so it was just a hard blackout. Um, for anyone that doesn't believe us, right? Because it's obvious at this point, we're months into this vaccine rollout, right? So people are so polarized. They, everybody's made up their mind already about the vaccines. You're either in this camp or you're in this camp. Well, what about the people that were pro-vaccine, right? Because that's all of us that got the vaccine and were injured and now we're somewhere in the middle. And in the meantime, you've got these two sides fighting and being really loud and chaotic. And we're just here in the middle saying, we need help guys. We need real help, right? We're here fighting for our lives and we just need someone to help pull us up, you know, give us some air, like just something. So yeah, this is what's been strange with, with um, what happened after Senator Johnson's conference, because he was very, you know, and, and after working with him um, since, I mean, he's incredibly kind. He's been very compassionate. Uh, he he's worried about specific people with their specific injuries. Um, so it's not like he was just using it to get airtime, right? Or to right. increase notoriety. Like, I really do genuinely believe that he was trying to help us by doing that. And instead, the press erased us, right? Right. We completely erased and they just went straight after Johnson and just, you know, attacked him. Um, for, yeah, for spreading misinformation. So right. all you so, guys are misinformation. And anybody who gives you a platform to discuss what's going on with medical establishment in America regarding the vaccines um, adverse events, you automatically get flagged as misinformation. Right. So our lives are not misinformation. Okay. So anyone that thinks, and I've been called everything, right? 
Um, and unless you're six feet under, it's misinformation. Right. And even right. that is suspect too. Right. And you so could have died from a chicken bone that you choked on. Right. I mean, if, if someone wants to review my medical record that is this thick now, if someone wants to pay my tens of thousands of medical bills, if they want to look at that, have at it. I know for a fact there is without question that the vaccine caused this. There is still a question of if I got COVID, would I still be in the same situation? I have no idea, but I do know for a fact that how we are managing the issues with the vaccines, we are doing ourselves a huge disfavor. We are sowing distrust between patients and their physicians. We are also sowing massive distrust between the public and the government agencies Mm -hmm. that are supposed to be disclosing these issues. The whole thing needs to be evaluated and re-examined and we need to, but the problem is, is until we acknowledge there's a problem, nothing's going to happen. I know right. that after that press event, the day after, so within 24 hours, they found one of our support groups online and they pulled it down off of Facebook. Within Facebook, 24 Facebook, hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had, um, we had contact with eight actively suicidal people in that support group. So these are people, it's not even like we were sharing inflammatory conspiracy theories or any of that stuff, right? I mean, I'm talking, people are putting up pictures of their rash. They're saying, I can't live another day. Please talk me out of, you know, the worst. Right. Um, so these are like, it's a support group. Okay. And it got pulled down within 24 hours, right? I lost contact with eight actively suicidal people with right. one, one blip. That group was gone. Luckily, we found seven of them, but I still don't know what happened to the eight. I Facebook. still don't know what happened to her. Facebook, YouTube, Google, uh, Twitter, these big tech platforms which are participating in communication, their communication, and the media that is that is is you know, like like what they did with with deleting your support group. Um, are they culpable? Are they, is, is, are they, is this, can this be deemed as criminal? Because they, um, these actions do cause harm to their clients because it's, they don't get the information. I, I have been curious if there's any kind of legal repercussion, but of course, in the climate that we're all existing in, you know, we can't get, you know, there's no, I'm sure there's lawyers looking into that because we're not the only ones being censored. Within a week, we had another support group taken down. So we had two groups just pulled for no. Do you guys have, do you have a backup like Telegram app? Yeah. So we've, we've figured out some backup solutions, you know, Okay. Um, so that's been good. We've been able to regather everybody Um, here in the United States. We're uh, just the American members that have neuro specific issues we're up to over well over five thousand, and that's just the small group that i have and what app what app is that group on now we've we've split it between facebook and um mewe i think is the other one um, how do you spell that mewe m-e-w-e m-e-w and so uh between the two and we've got some programmers that have been able to kind of track the, mem- the membership of the support groups on facebook uh, we also, I mean, Maddie DeGarry, right? The injured child in that press conference, her TikTok account was taken down for mm-hmm. misinformation. Her life is not misinformation. 
If someone wants to go to her house and see her existing in a wheelchair, I fed her myself from a feeding tube when we were in Milwaukee. The girl cannot eat any solid food. She went from a happy, functioning, normal child, jumping around, dancing, singing, full of life, to confined to a wheelchair. How can we take people like Maddie DeGary, right? And then we also have Ernesto, right? And all of these other young people. Teens, yeah. And bury that information and literally bury kids and not take a serious look at what's happening to them. It's, it's alarming and it's definitely, we absolutely can do better and we must do better. These, right. Those kids deserve better. They deserve care. They deserve um, respect. They do not deserve to be slandered and to be censored. Like, why are we censoring people's firsthand experiences? Why are we censoring suffering? I mean, yeah. that's the whole it's it's really sad and the recent see now i'm all worked up but cognitive dissonance cognitive dissonance applies just, in uh, many areas know, I see it, yeah i see it all day long and i've emailed janet woodcock at the fca i you know we we have conversations back and forth um she's the top of the fca but i've told her about this i'm like look this system is broken we have people so i'm a preschool teacher right so I get calls in the middle of the night from frantic parents in hospitals, okay? So for example, a week and a half ago, 10 days ago, I got a call in the middle of the night from a parent that was crying because her daughter was in the hospital and she couldn't even lift her own head. And she was sitting there begging the physicians to just consider that maybe there's an issue from her vaccine that she received less than 24 hours before. And her physicians refused, they refused, they refused. She called a preschool teacher. She didn't call government agencies. She didn't, she didn't call, call a lawyer. Well, she didn't have a she lawyer on. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, so if you think about it, there is something wrong with the system. There are physicians, yeah. lead physicians in this country that refer patients to us. Okay. A group of sick people. The system is broken. These right. people need to have appropriate medical care. And that's, you know, and that's the whole reason why I went to Milwaukee. But if it was just me, right, if I was the only person in this situation, I got to be honest, I didn't come, I didn't go public with this until the Milwaukee press conference. Yeah. I didn't talk to my friends on Facebook about it. I just kept everything quiet because I didn't want to be the reason that somebody got COVID because they didn't get vaccinated and then die or whatever, right? Right. The only well, reason I spoke out is because there are thousands just more like than that that are in, yeah, exactly, that are in my situation. Had these people actually been properly cared for, you and I would not be having this conversation right now. Uh I would be focused on my own healing, trying to figure out what's wrong with my body and accepting that this is some kind of isolated issue associated with AstraZeneca. But here we are months into the vaccine rollout and we are nowhere closer to understanding what is happening with these vaccines with adverse events than we were at the very beginning of the vaccine rollout. Our yep. group, so it's founded by physicians and nurses and me, because I was in the clinical trial, so I was the first to get it. Um, we drafted a letter to the CDC and FDA and the White House, and it described our plight. It described the nature of the reaction. 
and our complete inability to get recognition or medical care. And we literally begged them in this letter that was group signed to, for help, for them to look into this, for them to examine it, to start the conversation, right? We sent that in May, okay? And then we did a press conference in June because they didn't respond to the original letter in May. And then after June, all of a sudden, we're misinformation and we are bad actors and we are anti-vax and we are so this strategy that they're using where you get branded and then discarded it's actually been very effective right as we've seen so at some point we need humanity to win out and see there are not two sides there is not pro-vax and anti-vax okay there's a full spectrum of ideas and views that are in between those two sides right and so people always ask well what side are you on it's like i'm on the side of humanity okay it's humanity versus disease we don't have sides until we can all get on the same side of humanity covid will absolutely keep winning well let me ask let me ask you this okay so first when it comes to the vaccine injured you know, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, uh, it, it exists, okay? And it is a no-fault alternative to the traditional legal system for resolving vaccine injury. Um, it was created in the 1980s after lawsuits against vaccine companies and healthcare providers. And the links and the details on how to file it is in the show description, everybody. However, the COVID-19 gene therapies are not uh, included or covered in uh, the compensation program. And the only ways right now to get a new vaccine included into the compensation program is either to file a lawsuit and take it to court or to get legislators to pass a bill to include COVID-19 vaccine injuries into the compensation program. And this is a federal program um, so because the vaccination rollout campaign is sponsored by the federal government, used by all these federal agencies, and with these mandates and passports, again, more federal involvement, then um, COVID-19 vaccine injuries should be included in that. So how do, as an advocate, how do we get COVID-19 as a vaccine included into that federal compensation program for all these people who are injured? So this has been kind of strange in our, um, in our group. We've been trying to navigate this uh, for several months. We've met with several teams of lawyers that are specialists in these vaccine injury courts. Basically what happened in the 80s is the US government stripped liability from the drug companies, okay? and they put all of the liability into the government, right? And so every vaccine prior to the COVID vaccines, every vaccine administered and sold here in the United States, the drug manufacturer has to pay 75 cents into this vaccine injury fund that's put, um, you know, that's managed by the federal government. So currently we are, on the much lower paying uh, CICP fund. Mm -hmm. And basically that allows you to pay for medical expenses. There's no loss of wages, pain and suffering. None of that is allowed. Uh, 
unfortunately, there's so much red tape that's been put into that law over the years that the compensation, even through the CICP, is incredibly, incredibly rare and payout is very minimal. So there is the VICP fund, which is a higher paying fund. Uh, you can you know, file for pain and suffering and lost wages and other, and other things. Uh, the problem is, is we're not on it. And there is a current bill going through Congress, uh, which I, I don't think is actually picking up very much steam, but it's HR 3655. And it's a bipartisan bill that would put the COVID vaccines onto the VICP fund. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody and anybody that is sympathetic to our cause, I would implore you and beg you to call your elected representatives and ask that they support that bill. It obviously, it's only common sense that those that are harmed by the vaccines are some have, you know, they're able to receive some kind of compensation. Although none of us really care about money, but we just want our health back. I mean, really, but, you know, this fund is supposed to do this. There is some red tape already with HR 3655, and it only includes COVID vaccines um, from, that are FDA approved. So from what we've heard, unless the verbiage of that bill is changed, we're not on it. So anybody that's had any issues, you know, in, during the entire time of the COVID vaccine rollout, we're not eligible. So somehow right. the verbiage needs to be changed so we can be on the VICP fund. And also the verbiage needs to be changed to allow us to file and receive compensation in a timely manner. There's a lot of uh, people that have filed for previous uh, vaccines, you know, from HPV injuries, flu vaccine injuries, and it can sit in the court for, you know, like five, 10 years. So we need to somehow speed this up for people that are severely injured. Uh, yeah. Those that, you know, are in wheelchairs and those that can't work and those that need the money and they need the money now. Um, right. I, it seems like it's a common sense thing to right. you know pass appropriate legislation right so because the people who are injured quickly after the COVID-19 vaccines um they need to be able to file for uh for disability they need, yes. you know in in the interim and then uh then you have this greater bigger picture of the compensation program for vaccine injuries with an EUA um, vaccine now that brings another question also um, as an advocate like yourself um, we have the, um, the mandates and the passports, um, that are going on. And then you also have, as we've been discussing the media blackout censorship, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, suppression of, um, information about, um, you know, the other side of these vaccines not being completely safe and effective. And there are adverse reactions that people are not fully being disclosed of about it, including death. Um, and so most of the general public are not getting all of the adverse events disclosed to them prior to, and you're having all of these, the more appropriate word is coercion tactics. And so when you put that into the picture, then the public, do they really have choice? And if they don't have choice, which is what is being argued in this, this, this conversation, then if they get injured in the months or years ahead, and it is linked to this vaccine, um, then how would they compensate for those who are injured? 
you know, because the federal government took away their choice. Right. So there's like completely left out on their own. And I really absolutely wish that I was exaggerating when I said that, but it is not an exaggeration. We are leaving these people completely out abandoned on their own financially, medically. I mean, even emotionally, where's the emotional support for this? Oh yeah. You're you're a big liar. Right. So it's like, are we being rallied around, you know, as you know, those that have been injured during the battle and are you going to leave soldiers out on the battlefield? No, you're going to bring your soldiers home and you're going to take care of them. We're just being left out there with no recourse whatsoever. Right. Right. Well, what are your thoughts on, um, on early home treatments for people who catch? Cause, cause it's, it's, it's being well-documented now that, um, both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated do you catch and spread COVID and it's being documented now that the vaccinated, when they catch COVID, they, um, they have a higher viral load of COVID than somebody who's unvaccinated. And that data is coming in right now from a lot of different research facilities. And so, however, um, there, you know, however, there are uh, mandates going on right now, whereas the unvaccinated are dealing with losing their jobs, losing their livelihood. They're being marginalized in an apartheid society with the vaccine passports or green pass, whatever you want to call it, immunity pass, whatever you want to term it, it's the same exact thing. Uh, we're creating vaccinated versus unvaccinated sections in stadiums. It, you know, I mean, we're having these medical segregation um, all under the guise of safety. And yet the vaccinated, when they catch and spread it and have a higher viral load, are allowed to roam freely with no restrictions, no segregation, no marginalization. What are your thoughts in where you are sitting as in the middle of these these two camps? What are your thoughts on this thing that is happening, this phenomenon that's happening almost in coincidence almost in sequence with every country around the world for the most part. They're, they're kind of rolling the same program. Right. So it's been, it's really sad because obviously you would think that leadership of these countries and, you know, specifically here in the United States, that they would want to foster a different environment uh, for people to uh, talk to each other and treat each other. Um, obviously, even before our current president, we were having this issue where we were just growing more and more and more polarized. So I think that these politicians and these bureaucrats, and by bureaucrats, I mean the heads of the CDC, the heads of the FDA, heads of HHS, heads of the NIH, okay, they're bureaucrats. They're not real scientists, you know, um, they're in a bureaucratic situation. Um, bureaucrats and politicians, have taken it upon themselves to capitalize on the division already existing in this country and pit people against each other even further with this narrative of this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? So, um, which is kind of strange because when um, Delta started to spread, so if we go back in time a little bit, so when Delta began to spread here in the United States, my husband, he's a scientist, was watching the data coming out of Israel. And he's like, this is a little concerning. 
um, the efficacy with the vaccines is not the 90% or whatever that um, the drug companies had marketed them to be. The two-month two observation. Right, right. And against, mm -hmm. you know, and against previous variants, it probably was, you know, the efficacy was probably there because they were designed specifically for the early on strains. But Delta obviously came through and was repeatedly evading the, you know, the vaccines. And of course, anytime you have an infection, whether it's in a vaccinated person or not, you're going to have viral, viral load, right? That you're going to be able to spread to others. So at this time, the narrative in the US was unmask if you've been vaccinated, go about your lives. The vaccine um, campaign was a success, right? We've mm -hmm. dominated. At the same time, the head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, testified saying that the vaccines have been a victory. Um, and I, I need to find the dates, but at the same time, hospitals in Florida and other states were filling up, okay? So Delta was here. We already knew about it, but for some reason we were still hailing the vaccines as our ticket to freedom, right? Within 10 days, obviously the data had started to emerge here in the United States and they couldn't tow that narrative any longer. They had to start you know, letting the truth leak out. Um, and this is all just my perspective, right? Right. So, well, um, and, so, and at, the, at that and time too, that, the, at that time too, the CDC changed how they count um, COVID cases. So anybody who is uh, vaccinated, unless they die in the hospital or in the severe ICU, then they'll count breakthrough cases as part of the, of the COVID numbers. Otherwise, they get a pass. Only unvaccinated are counted. So yeah, it makes so, it it makes it look like only the hospitals are only full, but unvaccinated people. If you don't count the vaccinated, then it's only unvaccinated people in the hospitals. Right. So in, exactly yeah. in that same in that same testimony where you know uh, Dr. Lewinsky was going off about how safe and effective the vaccines were and they were a victory and ticket to freedom, blah blah blah. Um, she's also talking about the overwhelming data with the vaccines, blah 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 blah. Overwhelming data. One of the senators came back and asked her, well, what's, so when you say overwhelming data, what is that? And she said, oh, it's data from five states. Oh, and it's only hospitalized cases in those states. So if we're actually going to look at this, you know, science perspective, you're going to um, not want cherry picked data, right? From five states, from only hospitalized cases, you're going to want to track a much broader group than just the small population, right? I mean, it is obvious the science is still there for the vaccines keeping people from dying at an, uh, at an alarming rate, okay? So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the science is there for vaccines um, preventing death. Do they prevent the spread of the disease? Not like they're alleged, right? Um, Moderna obviously has higher rates of efficacy than Pfizer or any of the others against Delta. Who knows what's going to happen with future variants, though? Um, so after that hearing where uh, Dr. Walensky hailed this as a victory, um, cases started to rise in the hospitals. They could no longer go with that narrative. And all of a sudden, then they had to start um, opening up about what was really going on. Yes, we have the Delta variant and the hospitals are filling up really fast. We need everybody to be careful. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So instead of being honest, right, and saying, everybody, we made a mistake. 
We probably need to have everybody put your mask back on, whether you're vaccinated or not, right? And social distance. They didn't go over any of that. They went after the unvaccinated, right? And it still is there. And they totally played yeah. that polarized dynamic that we're they still, still play that. They still play, they still play that. Yeah. So with the mandates and the passport. That that that, that's the that's yes. the blame game and then you have americans who are vehemently angry and literally will burn somebody's house down if they find out they're not vaccinated because well, they believe so, that narrative sad because so they pinned all the anger and aggression for the pandemic not ending on the unvaccinated okay there's no regard for natural immunity or anything else if you don't have two shots then you're you know ugly and you know you're the right. reason why the disease is still progressing. But at the same time, if you watch the timeline, mm-hmm. then after the next two weeks, they started trickling out. Okay. Yep. Oh, it looks like the vaccines don't evade the disease. Right. Oh, it looks like, yeah, you're still going to spread this to your families. Oh yeah. You probably should have your mask. <laughs> so, um, but they didn't say it that way. It was unvaccinated are doing this to everybody. Had we just had everybody vaccinated at the same time, then we wouldn't be in this situation. But that's completely untrue. The Delta variant emerged, right? So the Delta variant is evading these vaccines. It emerged before the vaccines even had a chance. Okay. So this whole concept of, and the Wall Street Journal just did a really good article, and I'll send you the link so you can post it. But the Wall Street Journal did a really good article on the longevity of these vaccines and how they stack up compared to previous vaccines. Obviously, smallpox, um, chickenpox, the MMR vaccines, those have real data that show that we were able to contain the disease with the vaccines. Obviously, COVID is a completely different, um, it's totally different on a biological level. It's completely different than those other diseases, right? So the vaccine is not um, any more effective than the flu vaccines are. Um, so it's it's sad that we're still trying to hold it to this standard, right? When it's never going to get there, it's it's not going to be there from the and vaccine. it's causing and it's causing these injuries, right? And so yeah, and then you look at the safety data compared to the other mm-hmm. vaccines, and it's like, oh, there's obviously some concern there um, yeah. that warrants being looked into. And really, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, what about early intervention, right? Let's let's talk about early intervention because it because you're establishing and you're heavily into you know the you know the the different networks that you are working with trying to get this information out. But you've established what many other people have established that the vaccines are ineffective against all these variants. Um, that for whatever reason, people took it for whatever reason, that's fine, um, personal choice. But they took it. it, it doesn't stop you from catching or spreading COVID. It, um, if you get it, you, you get COVID and you're vaccinated, you potentially have a higher viral load than an unvaccinated person. So you're even more contagious. Um, and the science on that and more of that is coming in uh, as well. And at the same time, um, you risk these adverse reactions that um, many people are finding come up immediately or months 
later. We don't have years like so we haven't lived the years of this, but many, many months later, um, people are showing up with these reverse reactions. And depending on the person like you, got it immediately. Others got the neurological later with no medical history before. So, um, so with all that information about this, why are people going along with the mandates? Why are these hospitals and these different companies, why are they going along with the mandate? Is it, is it, is there some kind of coercion that's happening with the businesses, just like they did with the doctors and like what they did with the, the mainstream news? Is, is that same thing, like the same, you know, pulling the arm or wrist going on there? Yeah. I mean, if you think about how much money and how much effort has gone into this campaign from very, very, very powerful places, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 really tragic to see in a nation where we are supposed to have full freedom of information, full freedom of speech. It's been very strange to see just how much the information is managed right. and how much it can be skewed uh, one way or the other. Uh, this, you know, I, it being in my situation, right? Being someone that's sick, someone that had a body that was fine. I woke up, I went to work, I did normal things. I didn't have to think about my body feeling like it was being electrocuted all the time, you know? So going from that to what I am now, where my body is fighting itself all the time, my big accomplishment for today will be talking to you and making some scrambled eggs, and that's going to be it, you know? So, um, and, you know, I'll probably be tired tomorrow and really sick and not feel very well. Um, but so I feel like I was plucked out of the matrix. Like I just, I want to be plugged back into the matrix because after this injury happened, all of a sudden this whole world opened, right. With, you know, I went to the press conference. I saw who was there. I saw the reporters, the looks on their faces. I have talked to dozens of reporters at this point, And I've been told repeatedly, we can't make the vaccines look bad. I'm sorry. I can't run it they still go to their editors and try to run it and they can't. So I know, and then also dealing with the heads of these agencies directly, right? And seeing the mismanagement of this information on their end, all of it, it's just fall, fail after fail after fail after fail. So if I was still plugged into the matrix, right? I would still be eating into that narrative. I honestly, if this didn't happen to me, I don't think I would have believed it. Like, I got to be totally honest. I don't think I would have believed any of this yeah. because I still would have been feeding in to that narrative that they're spooning out for people. The, you, you'll be feeding into the propaganda and drinking the Kool-Aid. That's what they say. Oh, yeah. Totally is, that, is that what you're saying? Okay. So, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of people who there's a lot of people who refuse to see it until it happens to them. They, they, they drink yeah. the Kool-Aid and they drink it hard. I totally understand that. And I completely respect that. I have empathy for people who believe the propaganda and um, and they they don't want to believe anything else. So I have empathy for them. They'd suffer cognitive dissonance. It's a mental, it's a real, it, it, it's becoming a real mental issue. <laughs> but I understand that. I understand what you're saying with that. You know, um, how about early, early home treatment? So other countries, they offer a lot of early home treatment and care for people because they don't want people to get COVID. They don't want them to get vaccine injuries, you know, um, they have home kits with ivermectin for, for humans, um, which you can get 
here in the United States as well through online pharmacists. I'll put those links in their description. So if you guys want to get it early for the cold and flu season, regardless of whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, you can get a prescription from an RN or an MD in your local area that writes you a physical pres a prescription that you can get fulfilled for ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or whatever early home treatments you are interested in um, for uh, early care if you come up with a respiratory type flu symptom you will have it available in your medicine cabinet and not wait until you get sick to have that. Just kind of like when you get the flu right now, you don't wait five days to start addressing it. You're like, I think I'm coming down with something and I'm going to start my cold and flu regimen. But for some reason, there is no early home care cold and flu regimen for if you catch the COVID-19 type of flu, which is very different from all the other cold and flus that people have been trained to treat early on. So what is your thoughts about early treatments? I think it's a As, whole area that we have neglected, grossly have neglected. Uh, it would be very, very nice to see more money be funneled into research and attention be paid to early intervention. There's no uh, money in that. All the money right. is in the vaccines. Right. So you've got so. these drugs. Um, where's the marketing with those? So there's, mm. there is monoclonal antibodies, uh, which does seem to be uh, very beneficial for those that are getting the Delta variant. Um, and that's what researchers have told us, the injured, that we need to get if we do get COVID, that we need to go and get monoclonal antibodies because let's be honest, we're not allowed to get any more vaccines. You know, we absolutely should be granted medical exemptions, which for some reason has been really challenging for people in our situation to get, which I still don't understand. It's like the vaccine did you dirty, you shouldn't have anymore. I don't know why it needs to be so hard to understand that. But anyway, uh -huh, uh -huh. so yeah. it's like, so yeah, so you've got Regeneron, um, Ivermectin, I, you know, from my scientist friends, right? So this is just hearsay, but from my scientist friends, um, Ivermectin doesn't hold up as firmly against the Delta variant as it does with previous variants. Um, so I'm kind of on the fence about ivermectin. I think the vaccine injury conversation has been derailed so many times by the topic of ivermectin being the cure. Uh, we know tons of people that have had family members that tried to prevent the progression of the disease with ivermectin and they ended up in the hospital anyway. Several of them have passed away. So, um, you know, obviously nothing is like a black and white solution. So it's not like ivermectin is gonna cure people, right? Um, I do did, think did they do for your for their friends that um that took ivermectin for um early onset covid did they follow did they take it early or did they take it later or i mean so even because that's the that's, interesting that, that, thing so with, they do have a policy a, take it early not later yeah yeah early intervention right and early you know, intervention yeah here in the u.s like we try to tough it out for a long time and then we go to the hospital then we look into medical information and interventions and by then the disease has progressed to the point where it's very, very, very challenging to reverse, right? Mm. Delta, the Delta variant proliferates way, way faster than the previous variants. So that's why ivermectin isn't quite able to catch it and curb the progression of the disease because it's not able to catch it quite as fast as it was with the previous variants. And that's why some people are seeing a better benefit with monoclonal antibodies. But mm. because um, early intervention measures have become politicized, which it absolutely should not be, 
politicians have no place in the conversation of medical interventions. They don't. But because of the hot issues like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and all of those others, it has landed in the seats of, in the hands of politicians. So mm -hmm. here come monoclonal antibodies, right? A FDA approved preventative measure for COVID. And President Biden didn't like that the governor of Florida was saying, here, we've got monoclonal antibodies. We can help you guys, we can save lives. And so then he decided to get his little hand in there and um, start uh, restricting the flow of monoclonal antibodies. So I'm trying to understand where this makes sense for anyone on any side of the spectrum where we have politicians restricting the flow of life-saving medication. Well, but they, no the Biden sense. administration wants you to get the vaccine and that's the only thing that you're going to ever going to get. Right. So you have no got, choice in it as well. It right, seems like exactly. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, let's just push everybody into a corner and let's not look at these other issues. It's like, well, what about natural immunity? What about, you know, how many vaccine doses is it going to take, you know, to prevent people from dying? How do the vaccines hold up against all of the variants? Yeah. Um, what about these breakthrough cases, okay? What about the variants that are going to evade the vaccines from these breakthrough cases? What about early intervention? We're not looking at all of these perspectives from uh, with even effort. There is not even funding going to each of those yeah. questions. It's all, the vast majority is going into one bucket, right? And we all see it, we all know it, right? We've got this yeah. hyper-focus on vaccines. And we're leaving all of these other things that are going to help us get out of the pandemic. We've just kind of pushed them aside, right? And we're just kind yeah. of, there's scientists every once in a while, they're working on it, but it's like, and then we have politicians restricting early intervention measures. It, it, it's sad. Um, you know, I always, I always wonder where, where did they get their orders? Who's giving them their orders? They kind of know that this is not moral. So big pharma is the biggest lobby, as I've learned. Pharma. The drug they dealers, are, the drug yeah. dealers are the boss. Okay. All right. They are the biggest <laughs> lobby in Washington. Mm -hmm. There are three representatives in Washington for, there are three pharma lobbyists for every elected representative in the United right. States. So, and you could imagine from this perspective, being a sick person, right? We're one person now financially impaired because of our injury. Mm -hmm. And we're making little phone calls here and there to our elected representatives. When our elected representatives have big pharma, big money funding them, funding their campaigns, you know, right there in their backyard in Washington, D.C., um, I don't know how we can come up against that. I really don't. Um, it seems it, so, it goes back to humanity, really. I mean, okay. So the question with that is okay, because you just, you just basically answered the question. Of where are where is our governments taking their and these all of this taking their orders from and it comes down to big pharma. Well, you know, drug dealers never care if they kill their clients. Right. Well, and you know, the other thing is, is you know, these people that work at these companies, they have families. They want to. I really do genuinely. Oh, they're exempt. Believe. They're exempt from their own from taking it. Do you know? Yeah. It's actually it's actually in the documents, the Pfizer document. All the administrators, the the the, the vaccine administrators, and their family and friends are exempt from taking their vaccines. 
I find it very strange that there's these double standards going on. I really do. Mm. I mean, but yeah. So, you know, and I do, I do genuinely believe that like there are employees at these companies that they are there because they want to help people. They want to develop medications and stuff that'll save lives. I really do believe that there are good people, but Mm -hmm. the problem is is that um, whatever is behind this other movement, and maybe it's just fear. Maybe it's really because people are just so tired of having to deal with the pandemic. They're exhausted. And so they've got, you know, hyper-focus on this one thing because the campaign to get everybody vaccinated started way before the vaccines were even on the market. Right. Well, that's, so, that's suspect as well. Right. And so, yeah. And so it, it's strange to have, um, I don't know, it, it's just kind of strange to be on this side of the fence. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Let's, let's, let's switch focus really quick. Cause I have two more questions for you and we will close up. Um, you know, many people, really want to understand this and, and I ask these next two questions with due respect, with utmost respect. But as a vaccine injured advocate, why did you encourage your husband to go and get the COVID-19 vaccine and encourage him to be part of a local Salt Lake Health Department commercial promoting COVID-19 vaccinations after you've been injured from one? Can you explain that to people? Yeah, so uh, just kind of like we touched on before, Um, and I, I really think that this is kind of a prime example of, we think there are two sides and that there's nothing in between, right? We're missing the full picture. Okay. You're either for vaccines or you're, you're against vaccines. There's no in between. Um, when in reality, people get vaccinated from any vaccine and yeah, people are going to die. People get COVID. Yeah. You're going to die from COVID right? There's, there's problems with both. Okay. Um, I want to look at this and I want to remain in a place that's able to look at um, the science and the data from an objective perspective. Um, At the time, and and it still is this way, uh, the odds are for those that are uh, going to have the vaccine, if you're a man, the odds of having an injury are way, way lower than if you're a woman that's about my age. So we've done the research in our groups. We figured out there's a specific demographic that have this reaction, okay? We've, um, we're trying to figure out on our own, um, you know, what actually is happening behind these reactions. So when it came to my husband, um, I'm sick, right? So he got his opportunity to get his vaccine in March, first part of March. So I was still really, really, really sick. By that point, we had to refinance our house and hire a nanny. um, And we were just a sinking ship, just trying to stay afloat. So he could not get COVID. (laughs) Um, And because we had done a little bit of research at the time, we understood very firmly that the odds, so it was a straight up numbers game. The odds against him and his age and his body profile, he was still going to fare better from the vaccine than he would actual COVID. Um, And that's really what it was. It was a numbers game. And Uh, and did you guys ever, did you guys factor in early home treatments as a option? Yeah, because, yeah, because we had all the data and even with the data. And here's the thing. So, and if you go back and listen to what he said, right? um at the campaign right uh he he did not say 
go get vaccinated and your life's going to be fine. Okay. Mm -hmm. He said the vaccines are a tool in the toolbox in the fight against COVID. They are one tool. There's masks, there's early intervention, there's social distancing, right? And vaccines as a preventative. Okay. So I don't think that he's done um, a disservice to anyone because I do still believe that the vaccines likely do play a role in prevention of severe disease. Uh, however, uh, it's very concerning that we are not addressing the severe side effects um, and that we're still marketing this um, in a way that is not effective. The messaging is not effective. Right. People know, they know they're being lied to. So it's like, why mm -hmm. are you lying to everybody? Why don't, you know, anyway, so they've, they've hitched their, you know, cart to that horse and they're, right. ob it's obvious they're right. not going to change it. But so for us, um, it was a numbers game. And also um, with the pro vaccine campaign here in Salt Lake City. Um, hi. We're talking about you. <laughs> okay, we're going to edit him out. Yeah, we'll edit him out. It's okay. <laughs> this is why it's not live. This is why it's not yeah. live. He can't be on TV. So, um, anyway, so, but if you're going to have a, um, a vaccination campaign, right, or any kind of health uh, PSA, um, where you're going to inform the public or provide direction or guidance to the public. Uh, you might as well be telling the full story. Mm -hmm. So it was, I do believe that it was responsible on the Salt Lake uh, County Health Department's part to acknowledge that there are reactions to the vaccines uh, because the people in Salt Lake County, I have friends that are physicians. I have friends that are nurses, okay? So for me, there is no denying that they have seen We hope you enjoyed this episode of CVAR, where vaccine injured share resources and hope without censorship. For more information about today's guest, please go to the show description. The views expressed are for information purposes, but do not replace any medical or legal advice. Please subscribe for more interviews. Blessings.